Welcome to The Honest Report, a weekly podcast analyzing media coverage of the Arab-Israeli conflict, anti-Semitism, and radical Islamic terrorism. Violence escalating between Israel and the Palestinians, hundreds of rockets fired from Gaza toward Israel, people running for cover. We start the show with the breaking news that has been coming in. Israeli police are saying that at least seven people have been injured in a car ramming and stabbing attack in Tel Aviv. Hundreds of rockets fired from Gaza towards Israel. People running for cover on this Tel Aviv beach as their defense systems blew rockets out the sky. Here's your host, Rob Walker. Palestinian incitement against Israel has long been established as the main obstacle to peace between Israelis and Palestinians. But this incitement in Palestinian media, school textbooks, and mosques is only part of the equation. Palestinian incitement has also manifested in the continued rejectionism of the Palestinian leadership, which is sending an unmistakable message to the Palestinian population at large that Israel is an illegitimate state which should be opposed. In light of decades of this Palestinian incitement and rejectionism, is there any light at the end of the tunnel? Or has the Palestinian leadership poisoned an entire generation to oppose Israel, all but rendering any future peace all but impossible? To help provide some much-needed context, we are joined this week by Jonathan Spire. He is an analyst, author, and journalist specializing in the region. He is the director of the Middle East Center for Reporting and Analysis, a research fellow at the Jerusalem Center for Strategy and Security, and a fellow at the Middle East Forum. Welcome to the Honest Report podcast. Jonathan Spire, welcome to the Honest Report podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. I really wanted to pick your brain a little bit in terms of helping us really understand the issue of Palestinian incitement. Um, this issue, of course, has been to some degree um, well documented, or at least within a you know within Israel, well documented as far as how UNRWA, um, you know, the United Nations Relief Work Agency, has helped to uh, you know incite Palestinian violence and terrorism against Israel, the Palestinian school textbooks, etc., and its its relevance to Palestinian terrorism. But taking a bit of a step back, help us understand a little bit in terms of the history of Palestinian incitement against Israel. Uh, in terms of, is this something that really happened since the 60s with Yasser Arafat? And where is it today, sort of in the 2020s? Has it gotten better or worse? I mean, how has it morphed in the last sort of 50 or 60 years? Yeah, sure. Well, I think that uh, the fact is that the basic rejection of any aspect of the Jewish and, and Zionist uh, story, so to speak, you know, in on the Arab Muslim Palestinian, as they now call themselves, side has been, you know, pretty much universal all the way through the history of, of that movement. Um, you know, famously, you can find some very early examples of uh, of Chaim Weizmann's contacts with uh, with Emil Faisal, where the Hashemites, you know, were prepared to acknowledge some elements of, you know, well, yes, this. This country is where the Jews came from. It's not surprising you're coming here. But in terms of the Palestinian national movement, all the way from Hajamin al Husseini in the 1920s, what it has been is an uninterrupted uh, story, so to speak, of absolute rejection of uh, any justice of any kind or legitimacy of any kind regarding Jewish claims in the country. This is not, I would say, only about media or incitement in education. This is about policy as well. This basic perception has informed the policy of the Palestinian national movement since its inception, and it continues to do so. 
we should be aware, and I think you are aware, that you know, were there to be actually elections tomorrow in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip, all the indications are that the winners would be Hamas, not the Palestinian Authority. So you know that Hamas exactly uh, exemplified uh, the type of, I would say, political Islam uh, outlook and ideology and philosophy, which tends to be the winner, not only among the Palestinians, but also when it comes to their fellow Sunni Arabs in Egypt or in Syria or indeed in Iraq or Lebanon. So yes, this, this thing does have a long history, and I would say at its root is the absolute inability or unwillingness to concede any legitimacy on any level to the other side. And like I said, this is not only about the problematic uh, content in education systems or in media, though that's very important too, but it is also about policy itself. It's about the way that this movement conducts itself on the policy choices it makes. So yes, this, this is a very deep and very central, maybe the central problem that ensures the continuation of the Israeli-Palestinian so let's split that down the middle, if you will, in terms of policy on one side and sort of what we think of when we think of incitement as media and school textbooks, et cetera, on the other. Which one reflects the other? In other words, does the incitement in the popular street, if you will, create the conditions where no Palestinian leader, even if he or she were open, could possibly make peace with Israel because they would they would be assassinated, so to speak? Or is it that the Palestinian leadership is so antagonistic towards the concept of peace with Israel that media simply reflects that political reality. In other words, which one is the the you know the tail wagging the dog, if you will? Yeah, no, it's an interesting way of putting it. The answer, though, is I think that the uh, the uh, analogy, in a certain way, is problematic simply because on both the elite level and the societal level, these ideas are. Uh, pretty much taken for granted, are, are pretty much without opposition. That is to say, uh, you know, Abu Wazin, when he is, you know, in the past, in 2008, 2009, you know, refused, of course, to uh, take seriously or engage with then Prime Minister Olmelt's peace plan, or, of course, famously, the Arafat leadership back in 2000, the Camp David. You know, these are ideas that the leadership are committed to. But is there any sense at all that on the societal level people don't want that and they want something else? I'm afraid to say that's really not the case. Again, at least in terms of visible and examinable, you know, polling, which does take place in the West Bank, people like Khalil Shkaki and others who who do some serious polling in the West Bank, all the indications are that it is, it is political Islam, which has the uh, which holds the hearts of the people, so to speak. So I'm afraid that it, uh, without wishing to be the bearer of bad tidings, you know, this is something which uh, in, which uh, encompasses both the elite and popular level. It's not that one of them is the problem and it's impacting on the other. It's that in this respect, the leadership accurately reflects the examinable sentiments of the people. And there we are. So help us understand a little bit in terms of, I think you've touched on Palestinian rejectionism from a from a political standpoint. Uh, obviously, we could talk all day about that, but uh, mm-hmm. but I think that that's, you've touched on that. Help us understand a little bit when we talk about Palestinian incitement in schools and in the media, what exactly does that look like? Does it look like Israel is committing human rights violations uh, and because of its uh, violation of this resolution and this resolution? Or is it, you know, the Jews are uh, sons of pigs and monkeys? I mean, what exactly is incitement in the Palestinian sort of popular media? Yeah, in terms of media, I mean, I, I follow a number of different newspapers, which are the popular newspapers among the Palestinians, and the two which I would think of is Alayam and Al-Quds. 
And then the one which tends to get quoted a lot in like uh, English language monitoring of Palestinian media is what they call the official publication of the Palestinian Authority, which is a thing called Al Hayat Al Jadida. Uh, and and when you speak to Palestinians, they always kind of laugh at that because they go, yeah, but nobody reads that. Nobody takes that seriously. I think that's a fair point. That's a reflection of, let's say, the official ideology. If you look at Al Quds and Al Ayam, you know, you won't see, you know, this kind of theological, uh, furious, anti-Jewish sentiment referring to Jews as monkeys and pigs on the front page of those papers. You absolutely will not see that. You'll you'll hear that in the mosques. You'll hear that Alexa. You know, that's where you're going to hear that stuff. But you won't see it in the newspapers. But what you do see is just, uh, I guess you'd say, one could say, you know, a, a narrative in which just it is taken as read that, you know, the Palestinians are simply absolutely the victims of an absolutely incomprehensible and dreadful situation imposed on them by a completely uh, illegitimate uh, enemy. And certainly you will see, you know, a kind of terminology which, if Israelis were to become familiar with it, would be quite shocked. You know, for example, it is routine to, in both, I would say, conversation among Palestinians, but also in media, to refer to terror attacks as operation, you know, as, as amaliyat. You know, this is a, the regular word that is used. But there's a whole different terminology, a whole different outlook, which simply has no space in it for any notion that any justice of any kind, or legitimacy of any kind, uh, rests on the other side. And that's what you find in media. But you don't find, like I say, of course, I am. You don't find sort of theological stuff of that kind, which you, you would mention. But you'll find that in the mosques and sermons. That's where to go in that stuff. Now, help us understand a little bit in terms of the mosques and the sermons. To what degree are these independent uh, religious leaders who might be spreading anti-Semitic disinformation versus people who are receiving a certain amount of uh, official or unofficial encouragement from the leadership to, uh, to spread that kind of stuff? I mean, look, at the end of the day, you know, these are not democracies, of course. So had the authority, should the authorities wish to close down this or that preacher, of course they could do so. The fact is that they do not do so, which doesn't mean that the preachers themselves are kind of puppets or, you know, employees in the simple sense of the Palestinian authority just repeating their propaganda. On, on the contrary, you have, you know, movements, for example, in, in Al-Aqsa, you have a very strong presence of a movement called Hizmet Tahrir, you know, which is a party which is not connected to uh, by any means, to the ruling authorities of the PA, and it's also not connected to Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood. So you have, you know, different streams. But the point is that these streams engage in very extreme uh, religious rhetoric, and the PA and the powers that could, should they wish to, put a stop to that, simply don't wish to do so and have no interest. In doing it. Taking a bit of a step back, one of the um, defenses, I suppose, of some of the Palestinian intransigence has been, well. There has been, you know, decades and decades, generations of really brainwashing an entire multi-generations of Palestinians into thinking that Israel is a foreign cancer upon the Middle East. So even if there was a Palestinian leader tomorrow who threw the doors open to negotiation, open-ended negotiation, accepted Israel's right to exist unreservedly, etc., you know, the, the defense might be that this person would not have popular support and in fact would be putting their life very much in their hands. And that it really has to be done sort of bit by bit by bit. Um, do you buy that? Or is that if there was a real uh, Palestinian leader who had the vision to do so, they could actually help move uh, the narrative towards something a lot more conciliatory? I mean, there is a tradition, of course, of authoritarian leadership in, in, in those areas and in this part of the world, indeed. 
So, you know, one shouldn't rule out the power of that. But I would say that history indicates to us that if you were to have a Palestinian leader who genuinely wanted to give up some of the sacred cows of Palestinian nationalism, specifically the issue of right of return and the issue of control of the entirety of uh, of Jerusalem, that it is likely that that person would face, uh, you know, physical opposition to his uh, to his uh, intention. I think that's that's pretty much you can pretty much take that for granted, because as I said, the uh, the situation in terms of popular support is that is that Hamas is the chosen party of the people. There's no question about this. This is well documented, and indeed, we know that when there actually was free elections, which now in distant memory, you know, there actually was in the Palestinian territories in 2006 free elections, then Hamas were, were the victims. But we don't need only to focus on area. We know that from Egypt. We know that from Syria. You know, we know that political Islam is the choice uh, at the popular level regarding Sunni Arab populations in this part of the world. There's no reason to assume there's anything different in that regard. So yeah, any leader who would choose to deviate from that, one, would be taking an enormous risk. And secondly, almost certainly would have to use physical coercion, you know, against some pretty powerful opposition coming from below, because it would be regarded absolutely as a betrayal. No, you've touched upon uh, just briefly, and you've written on this as well, how violence uh, in Israel between the Palestinians and Israeli uh, security forces uh, typically jumps during the period of Ramadan, the Islamic holy month. How much does that teach us about the ability of religious leaders, secular leaders, the news media, etc., in the Palestinian territories to be able to inspire this kind of uh, immediate revulsion and hatred against Israel and the ability of people to drop uh, drop everything and sort of take to the streets. Is this overwrought or is this really over-exaggerated or is this really as powerful as it appears to be when these violent attacks happen? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think that what, what happens is that the, the crowd can be incited for a short and limited period of time to very great uh, anger. This is what we see in Waxa and elsewhere, you know, especially during the month of Ramadan, when just lots more people are going to those places, and the focus is on religious messages. What we've seen over the last two years, however, and, and arguably going back further into the history of this country as well, you know, a fascinating book by Oren Kessler was just published uh, about the Arab revolts of the late 1930s, in which you know, Oren has shown the way in which a lot of the patterns that we take in social their own time were actually present much earlier on as well. What we uh, do see is that you know that incitement, that anger, that fury can be can be you know fired up and exist for a while. And it does not necessarily turn then into you know a kind of mass insurgency of the kind that Hamas or Islamic Jihad want, and of the kind that did exist uh, in this country in the period two thousand to two thousand four or five. Did you remember this? The second Intifada, you know. So yes, the incitement works. You can't just switch it on and off like a tap when you just switch it on and you get an armed uprising. It's not like that. There's much more complex factors intervening. But certainly, these religious messages, the periods of the year, tend to be times when, you know, incitement can be at its most effective. And have these, it almost seems like a, like a silly question, but because it's still being done, but does the Palestinian leadership continue to find value in tapping into this resentment and amplifying and amplifying it? Or has it almost become too big that it somewhat becomes a bit of a threat? In other words, people say, hey, Palestinian leadership, you're telling us that Israel is this, that, and the other, and yet you continue to at least officially recognize them, or at least to some degree put on that show of it. Why haven't you marched on Jerusalem and liberated Jerusalem, etc.? In other words, 
Has the Palestinian leadership created a monster that it itself can't put back? Or has it recognized that? Or is it happy to sort of keep pushing this and pushing this? Uh... Yeah, well, I'll make two points. Firstly, I, I don't think that the Palestinian leadership has created this. I think the Palestinian leadership is the product of this, much more than the creator of it. Secondly, when we say Palestinian leadership, we need to define what we mean. It, it is given, it is understood that when we say Palestinian leadership, we mean the PA leadership in Ramallah. I would question that. Why do we mean that? There's a, there's a functioning... Islamist enclave, enclave in Gaza that has now been in existence for 16 years. All polls indicate it has greater public popular legitimacy than the PA and the Ramallah. That's just, uh, in my personal opinion at least, uh, facts that we have to face. So if we think about that leadership, then that leadership for sure is very much in favor of making use of incitement as much as it can. With regard to the, you know, the corrupt kleptocracy that rules in Ramallah, I would assume that the considerations are a little bit different because they want to keep their hands on the spoils and the very pleasant lives that they and their kids live. So there, I assume there is a certain dilemma. They want to try to use this stuff to gain legitimacy in their kind of political war against Israel and international institutions, but they do not necessarily want it to get out of control like the situation we have now, where in Jenin and Nablus, you have armed groups emerging in the so in the supposed area of rule of the PA, which are not under the control of the PL. But even Hamas and the Islamists, um, they have become, you know, as you said, they're not just you know uh, extremist groups standing outside the tent. They are the leadership now, and they have responsibilities um, uh, to their people in terms of uh, infrastructure and water and schools, etc. Are they concerned about? pushing public anger to such a degree that all of a sudden people will look at Hamas and say, you guys are too moderate. You guys aren't, you know, you're telling us that the that the Israelis are terrible and yet you haven't destroyed Israel. You haven't liberated us. Is that a concern even on the Islamists uh, part or have they only scratched the surface? Yeah, well, I think we would have to differentiate here between Hamas and Islamic Jihad in the sense that Islamic Jihad is not, is not an establishment. You know, actually it's a let's say, fully paid up contractor for the regime in Tehran, the Iranian regime in fact, it's different to Hamas. And in regard to Hamas, the sense is that, yes, there's, a, there's, there's something to this. My sense is that what Hamas appears to want is to keep things fairly quiet in Gaza itself, i.e. in the area where it rules, while at the same time seeking to light the fire or fires uh, in the West Bank. That's what they're trying very hard to do. And Islamic Jihad is trying to light the fires in both Gaza and West Bank. That, I think, would be the distance. And, that, and as you correctly, I think, uh, observe, that does derive from the fact that Hamas is a ruling authority. It enjoys clearly being a ruling authority and it wishes to continue to be one, but that doesn't stop it from trying to you know, fire up the situation in the West Bank. Well, Jonathan, I mean, I think you've given us a pretty sober assessment, uh, both uh, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, the wider Islamist movement, as well as the Palestinian Authority. They may have their own views and, 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 and values, but ultimately they're all driven to some degree uh, to a large part on the rejection of Israel's right to exist and the uh, continued incitement uh, against Israel. So it's uh, I think that was a, cool. a very sobering assessment, but I really appreciate your time and your expertise in helping us uh, peel back a little bit of those uh, details for us today. Thank you so much. Mark, welcome. Thank you very much for the invitation. And that's today's edition of the Honest Report podcast. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to our mailing list, our podcast channel, and follow us on social media for the most up-to-date news. If you like what you've heard, please consider a donation to support our continued efforts at www.honestreporting.ca slash donate. Until next time, thank you so much for listening.